International Ninja Day. International Ninja Day. Uh, it's International Ninja Day. So uh, you say, well, I, I didn't see that coming. Well, that's why they call it Ninja Day, right? <laughs> that's kind of crazy, but if you saw it coming, they would call it Sinja Day. You know, they've seen you coming from a long way off. But neither here nor there, okay, it's poor sense of humor here, but December 16th is another holiday. And it's National Chocolate Cover Anything You Want Day. <laughs> now, some of you probably celebrate that every day. You don't care about which day it falls, uh, but that's okay. December 18th, for example, is National... Are you ready? Anybody know? Wear a plunger on your head day. It's true. It's true. Go online. They have a website and everything. Wear a plunger on your head day. Now, traditionally, they encourage you to go out and buy a new plunger, but, you know, it's been a tough year. So, you know, if you got one laying around the house for a couple years, I guess that'll work, whatever. Let's be frugal, right? Tough year. Um, December 21st is National Regifting Day. How many of you re-gift? You know what re-gifting is? You get a gift, you know, eh, not going to use it. It's it's even not nice. Maybe you don't have a practical use for it, so... Next Christmas, you give it to someone else. Um, 85% of Americans, by the way, say that they re-gift. <laughs> that they re-gift. Um, you know what the number one re-gifted item is? They, even, they have stats on everything, right? You can find all this stuff. The number one re-gifted item, you ready? Plungers. No, just kidding. It's not plungers. <laughs> it's not plungers. It's candles. It's candles. Candles. So some of your husband who bought your wife a beautiful candle for Christmas, you might want to rethink that one. That's December 21st. There's one more I want to mention. i got to mention this. This is for all you Seinfeld fans. December 23rd is what? Festivus. A holiday for the rest of us, right? Um, it's celebrated basically by wrestling with your family and arguing grievances over the past year that you've had with them. You say, well, that sounds like my Christmas, <laughs> you know, <laughs> gathering together with family and arguing. Uh, but no respect to those holidays, okay? We should primarily in December focus on our Christian roots on Christmas, right? It's that time of the year. And so we're in this series contemplating Christmas, and we're trying to make sure that our mind is full and our hearts are aligned with what Christmas is all about. Because it's so easy, it's so easy to get caught up with all the food, all the meals, all the decorating, all the presents, all the preparations. And then none of that's bad, by the way. That's good. I mean, we should do those things. They're wonderful, but we can get so caught up with it. Someone once said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. He'll make you busy. And for some reason, around Christmas time, we just get busy, 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 busy. And sometimes we forget, because we're caught up in the busyness of Christmas, that we don't really celebrate what Christmas is all about, the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a shame. And so what we're doing is through the series, this is our fourth message, and next week we'll have our last one. Um, We're cutting kind of deep down into that rut and what the truth of Christmas is. So last week, we started all the way back in the book of Genesis with the need for Christmas, the need for Jesus, right? And we said that God, in the garden, after sin entered the world, he looked down and he said, you need me. You need me. You need Christ. You need Jesus. The need for Christmas, the promise for Christmas is right here in Genesis chapter 3. And if we don't get this, we're not going to understand anything else. So last week... Uh, we looked at four consequences of sin in our introduction. We looked at shame, right? When they, when they, found, when they sinned, they found out they were naked, they were shameful. Um, they were guilty, number two. Um, and guilt, by the way, is a totally appropriate response. Um, shame is a totally appropriate response to guilt. There's nothing wrong with that. We live in a day and age where everybody says, oh, you shouldn't be shamed about anything. Well, if you're sinning, if you're guilty, you should feel shame. Before a holy God. And then we said fear was the third one. And it says when when we sin, we die. 
And that's the fourth one. Death entered into the world. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will what? What's it say? Surely die. Surely die. And so we saw that back in Genesis, we saw the first gospel. And who preached the first gospel? Do you remember? God. God preached the first gospel. And all the way in the book of Revelation, there's an angel that preaches the gospel to the world. And so you have God starting off in the book of Genesis preaching the first gospel. And it's to everybody because, well, there's only two people, but it was everybody, all right, Adam and Eve. He preached the first gospel to them. And so at the end of the Bible, you have in the book of Revelation an angel that preaches the gospel, it says, to the whole human race. And so the question we posed last week was, well, who fills the gap between God preaching the first gospel and the angel preaching the gospel at the end of all time? And the answer is us, the church, right? We fill the gap. And we saw how God didn't wait weeks or months or years after Adam and Eve sinned. He was right there. His plan was unfolded. And we talked about four Two elements, actually, we have four. We're going to cover the next two today. The first gospel in the garden, first of all, included a judgment on Satan, and we saw that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. He says, because you've done this, you're cursed. Now, it's not just the snake, the animal that was cursed. He's not talking to the snake. He's talking to who? He's talking, he's applying this to Satan. The snake is just kind of there. It's a non-entity, you know. It's, it's something that's there, but it's, it's symbolic, it's, it's symbolic of Satan. And he's saying, basically, Satan, you lifted yourself up for the last time. And now I'm going to put you down as low as a snake. And you're going to have to crawl around and eat dust for the rest of your life. Just like Adam and Eve was tempted to eat of the fruit of the garden. And then we said that there's a statement of war, not just the judgment of Satan, but a statement of war. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, I will put enmity or strife between you and the woman. And, and you and the woman represent the kingdom of darkness, Satan, you, and the woman, all mankind. See, Satan thought that he was getting a pretty good deal here. He had already taken a third of the angels with him when he left he- heaven, remember? He took them with him. And he thought, well, this is good. This is a, a good number of angels. We don't know how many it was because angels are innumerable. So, but it was quite a few. And angels can't procreate. So he couldn't have any more than a third of the angels. So what his plan was was to tempt Adam and Eve. They fell. And now they're part of his little kingdom as well. The only difference was, was Adam and Eve can procreate. They can't have children. So he saw a limitless opportunity for deception and havoc on the earth And God stepped in and said, "Uh, no, it's not going to work that way. These people are not going to like you. They're going to hate you. I'm going to put enmity in the heart of all people against you, Satan. And for the most part, that's true. Now, we have some exceptions, obviously, people that have gone way off the deep end and worship Satan and all kinds of things. But for the most part, people don't like Satan. For the most part, people don't like snakes. <laughs> the poor snake got a, the raw deal of this thing, I think, you know. Uh, he's just representative of Satan. But this represents the sovereignty of God. And this war that we're involved with is not just Satan against us. He hates us. So when our life is troublesome and, and having a hard time and marriage difficulties, financial difficulties, we shouldn't be surprised we're in a war. We're in a spiritual battle with Satan himself. He's at war with us. But we are also, Ephesians tells us what? At war with him. Right? And so we have to do that through the power of the Spirit. So we see the judgment of Satan, the statement of war, and then thirdly, and luckily we get to this this point, an announcement of hope. And this is where we left off last week. In Genesis chapter 15, Verse or Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, Between your offspring and her offspring. The word offspring or seed, depending on what translation you have, is used over 300 times in the Bible. And this is the only time it talks about the seed of a woman. <laughs> That's the only time. Why? Because the woman doesn't supply this seed, right? The woman has the egg. But here was a unique situation. Technically, medically, a woman doesn't have a seed. She has an egg. But God says, I'm going to win this battle for mankind against the enemies, and it's going to be won through 
seed of a woman. I mean, it's just like God to do something that nobody else could do, right? I mean, only God could do this. And uh, how is that? It says in Ephesians chapter 7, or Isaiah chapter 7, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And it tells us what? Behold, the virgin, Mary, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. The woman only has a seed when there is no human father. This is what God did. Only time when a woman can have a seed is when there is a virgin birth. Jesus could not come into the world through the seed of Adam because he would be what? He would be sinful. He would be sinful. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, if Jesus had an earthly, literal father... He could not have been the savior of the world because he could not have been the sinless savior of the world. And so we're all sinners because of our father, our Adam, basically. It's passed right down. And so God implanted inside of Mary, not through the seed of Joseph, but through the planting of God himself, And so we have this sinless Savior. And you say, well, why do we need a sinless Savior? Because only a sinless man could undo what sinful man has done. That's the only way. So the virgin birth, the promise we have here, God has promised all the way back in Genesis 3 what he's doing, what he's done in Matthew 1 and in Luke 2. And everything hinges on this in our faith. Everything hinges on the virgin birth. Without the virgin birth, we don't have a savior. Without a savior, we're still in our sins. Without the virgin birth, we don't have a savior because we don't have a sinless man who can die for sin in our place. And only a sinless man can be God. So we have the God-man, Jesus, together. 100% man, 100% God. It's the hope that we have when we celebrate Christmas. That we have one who, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, promised us that he would provide. And so we're focusing here on what Jesus is needed. Well, fourthly, not just the judgment of Satan, the statement of war, and the announcement of hope... But the first gospel also included, and this is great, a pronouncement of victory. A pronouncement of victory. Look at what it says in verse 15, Genesis 3. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, Jesus is here and he's pronouncing the gospel. A proclamation of victory. He says, he shall bruise your head. Who's he? Jesus shall bruise Satan's head. And you shall bruise his heel. Now, that word bruise there, it's not just a little pat on the head. This is not what it's talking about. The literal word means to crush, to smash, to pound. It's very graphic, very extreme. It's not a love tap. It's a devastating blow. And if you look at that verse, both sides receive the same kind of blow. They both receive a bruise, a devastating blow, the same type of blow for both sides. It's the same type of blow for Satan, the same type of blow for Christ. What's the difference between the two? What every real estate says Whatever, whatever, whatever real estate agent says, what? Location, 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 right? That's what they all say. One is crushing the heel. The other is what? Crushing the head. There's a big difference there. You can survive if your heel gets crushed. If your head gets crushed, you probably don't have much hope for you. One is temporary. The other is what? Terminal. 
That's what he's saying here. These are devastating blows. On the cross, we had the bruising of the heel of Christ. It's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 5. He says, but he was, what, pierced for our transgressions. He was, what, crushed, it says, for our iniquities. See, when they literally pounded Jesus to the cross, they pounded his heel for sure. They crushed his heel. But it was only a temporary crushing. Because we know the story, right? Three days later, he rose from the dead. It was a temporary bruising, but unfortunately not for Satan. When Christ hung on the cross and he says what? It is finished. His last words. He was crushing the head of the serpent of Satan. Well, you say, well, he must not have done a very good job because there's a lot of stuff going on. (laughs) Look around. Growing up in Pennsylvania, I remember one time we had a rattlesnake. And our brother went and one was going to get a gun, but I don't know if he couldn't find one or whatever. So he got a shovel. And he got the snake and he put that spade down on the neck of that snake, cut its head off. And I'll never forget, that snake moved around for, it seemed like hours, without a head. Just wiggling around on the, on the, on the ground. You know, it's a good illustration. It's, it's, it's what's going on. Satan is a defeated foe. He's done. He's still active, though. Um, John tells us in 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to what? Destroy, destroy, utterly destroy the works of the devil. John tells us that it was for this oppressive Time, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Not just temporarily, but ultimately. The ultimate work of stealing men and women from God. He's breaking that on the cross. He broke that on the cross. He crushed the head. He cut off the head of the serpent and said, you know what? Your days are numbered. Romans chapter 16, verse 20, Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that a wonderful promise? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, if you look in Genesis chapter 3, go down a little bit further in verse 21. I love this verse. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins. And he, what, he clothed them. Now remember, they had a vain attempt to shield their own shame, right? So they got some fig leaves and made a little whatever, moo-moo or something. I don't know what they made, but they covered themselves and they thought they were all good. Well, God says, no, uh, that's not going to work. They were covering themselves with leaves and God says, listen, you know what? Your good works will never cover you enough. Your good works will never cover you enough. The only way you can really be covered is if I do it for you. And that's what God did. I mean, you can't have an animal skin, right, until you kill an animal. A sacrifice. That verse is the first sacrifice for mankind. It was the first sign of grace from God to man. God sacrificed an animal, something that he had created. I wouldn't be surprised that when we get to heaven one day, we say, hey, God, what kind of animal was it that you sacrificed? I wouldn't be surprised at all if he says, you know, I was a little lamb. (laughs) Got to stick with the theme, you know. I don't think he's going to say, oh, it was a monkey. I don't think that was, you know, I don't think that's going to work. I think a lamb would provide the proper covering. And what he was saying was, one day I'm going to send the real lamb, the final lamb, who will clothe you for whatever, forever. I mean, I love the grace here of God. I love what he's saying to Eve. You know what, Eve? You blew it. Shouldn't listen to that serpent. You shouldn't listen to Satan. You did. 
It was a terrible mistake. It was a terrible thing you did. It was a sin. But you know what? I'm not done with you yet. There's still hope. And by the way, Eve, through you comes another woman. There's going to come another woman through you, through your lineage. And I'm going to use her. See, Eve, you were impulsive. But you know what? She's going to be obedient. (laughs) And through her, I will bring that last lamb. I will clothe you now. He says to all who love him, I will clothe you, but you have to trust me. You have to put your faith in me. I'm going to clothe you forevermore. And you know what? I promise you will always be with me. It's a beautiful picture of Christmas right there. The need for Christmas is evident. And the promise of Christmas is evident as well. Dave read for us out of Isaiah chapter 9. And what we want to look at now is the promise that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. What's, what's the Old Testament? The Old Testament is promise after promise after promise of prophets saying what? The Messiah is coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. You have some 300 messianic prophecies in the word of God that says the Messiah will come. The sacrifice, the Redeemer will come. It not only says he will come, but it tells us kind of what he's going to be like. When he's coming, not exactly, but the times. Where he's going to be born. What he's going to do. These prophecies tell us incredible detail. 300 messianic prophecies. Well, why would God do this? Because when he sends his son, and Jesus shows up in Bethlehem, God wants everyone to know this is it. This is him. This is the one that I promised. See, faith in Christ is not just blind faith. It's based on evidence. It's based on fact. So he says he would do this. He said he's going to be born here. This is what's going to happen to him. And so when you put all of these prophecies together, and you look at the life of Jesus, what we have recorded, it's got to be him. There's no other person. It has to, he has to be the Messiah, the Redeemer. He is the one that God promised to us. Because all the things that God had said about him were fulfilled. Mathematicians tell us the probability, forget about 300, the probability of just eight of these prophecies happening to one individual, the probability of just eight, not 300, just eight, is one in one septillion. What's septillion? It's a one with 21 zeros behind it. See, Jesus isn't just one of a million, one in a million long shot kind of a thing. It's it's a one in septillion. God says, I don't want you to be confused about who this is. I don't want you to misunderstand who I sent to you. I want you to clearly understand. And that's why we see... God telling us right up front, this is what's going to happen. He gives you a heads up. He gives you a little tip. I'm telling you who he will be. I'm telling you where he will be. I'm telling you what he will do. Tell you even what his personality was like. And you can tell who it is because they're all fulfilled in that one individual Christ. So the centerpiece of of Christmas prophecy is what Dave read this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. 700 years, listen, 700 years before the angels spoke, before the, the manger was rocked with the infant Christ, before the wise men came and before the shepherds bowed down, 700 years prior to that, 
God, through the prophet Isaiah, had him dip his prophetic pen in the inspired ink, and he wrote these scriptures about Jesus, the Messiah, the Redeemer, what he would be like and what he would do. And when you look at those two verses, 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9, it's remarkable that these two verses together help us to focus. They help us to remember. They allow our heart to be soaked with the truth of what Christmas is all about. So as you contemplate Christmas, I pray you're really going to understand what God has for us in him. So let's look at these two verses. 700 years prior to Bethlehem, Isaiah says what the Redeemer will do, what he will be like. God makes some promises about this gift of Jesus to us. And there's just three things here I want to point out. Three things. God promised Jesus would be, first of all, a personal gift to us. A personal gift to us. Look at what it says in verse 6 of Isaiah 9. It says, for unto what? For for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Usually once a year, I'll get something in the mail here at the church. Sometimes it's just an envelope and it has a pen in it. Or sometimes it's a book or... It could even be, a, sometimes they send a mug. And I'm always impressed when I open it up and read it, because it says, Pastor, we just want to thank you. It's just our little way of thanking you. And that was all marketing stuff, right? But we just want to thank you for your being a faithful pastor. The only problem is, it's usually addressed to Pastor Richard Owen. Who hasn't pastored here in 25 years? <laughs> I mean, I keep the little pens and stuff. I'm sure he's with the Lord now, so he doesn't mind. But, you know, it, it's, what is it? It's, an, it's a gift. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll take a free pen or a mug or whatever. Go ahead. But you know what? It's impersonal. It's very impersonal. I don't even know who I am. They got the name wrong. I mean, there's nothing like a personal gift, is there? When you get a gift and it's, it's just, it, it just kind of meets what your needs are, what your likes are, what your desires are. I mean, you can tell that somebody really put some thought into it. See, that's what Jesus is to us. That's what God is saying. He's a personal gift. Not just to the whole world, but to you. The one who's sitting in your chair. Onto us a child is born. There's two important phrases here. 700 years in advance, God gives us basically the Godhead here. He says, first of all, child is born. A child is born. What does that refer to? It refers to, to the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus. He was a child. He was a baby. A physical baby in a manger. He didn't have some halo over his head. He looked like every other baby. And then it says a son is given. A son refers to the divinity of Jesus. See, as a child of Mary, he is born what? Onto the earth. But as a son of God, he's what? He's given from the Father in heaven to us here on earth. He is God. Why did he do that? So that we can go from earth to heaven. <laughs> he gave his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, from heaven to earth so that we could in turn come back to heaven. And over and over again, this is probably the thing that's missed most at Christmas time. Because we're so enamored with all the little pictures of the little baby Jesus in the manger. And, oh, isn't he so cute? This baby is God. He's God. That's what Isaiah is saying here. The gift of God is going to be the gift of a person who is divine. He's going to be a 
person divinely wrapped in the package of humanity. I mean, it's mind-boggling when you think about it. How did God do this? But it's very imperative. It's important that we understand this. You have a lot of people who claim to be religious. Won't mention any names, Mormon Jehovah Witnesses, who do not celebrate Christmas. Because they do not believe that Jesus is God. They do not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. But this is the celebration of Christmas. God is saying, I am sending, what, myself to you. That's what the incarnation is all about, that word incarnation. You're not going to find it in the Bible. It's a Latin word. In meaning in, carne meaning meat. We talked about this. Spirit becoming flesh. Meat on the bones. That's who Jesus was. He was God with meat on, with flesh on. Let me be very specific here and very clear because sometimes we, we misunderstand this. God did not look down from heaven one day and saw that this little baby Jesus was born and said, Wow, isn't that a beautiful little baby? Look at how good he looks. I think I'm going to adopt that baby and, and I'm going to put my supernatural powers in that baby and I'm going to raise him and I'm going to protect that baby and then one day that baby's going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to be my redeemer. That's my choice. He's my Messiah. That's not how it happened. God looked down from heaven and he saw the poverty. He saw the depravity of man. And he said, I have to come down and rescue you. See, we don't celebrate the adoption of Jesus. We celebrate what? The incarnation of Jesus. God becoming man. That one who is forever. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he did not begin in Bethlehem. That's not where he began. That's where he took on a human body. Jesus has no beginning. He's God. He's the eternal one. So he was physically born, but there was no beginning for him there. He's been there forever. I mean, my goodness, the Bible says that he's the creator of the Godhead. He created everything we see around them. So what are we celebrating? We're celebrating the incarnation. Don't let this Christmas go by without thinking, that's not just a little baby. That's God in the flesh. Now, it's not that he was just born and he's the Savior and the Redeemer and the gift to all the world just in a general way. There you go. I gave everybody my Christmas gift. God's saying, no, it's a personal gift. It's personal. Christ is a personal gift for you, for me. Look at what it says. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. Now, Isaiah is talking personally of humanity, sure. But remember what the angels said, even more specifically, when they showed up in the fields with the shepherds? In Luke chapter 2. I mean, can you imagine being one of these shepherds out there? You know, it's pitch dark. You know, it's not like they had street lights out in the fields, right? So maybe they had some moonlight. Maybe not. Scripture kind of indicates it was, it was pretty dark. And if you've ever been out in the wilderness and you have no lights at all, I mean, you have the, the stars, that's about it, if it's, if it's a clear night. And all of a sudden, the heavens are lit up with multitudes of angels. I mean, can you even imagine being in that situation? Talk about being scared. Talk about fear. I mean, it might be beautiful if you anticipate it, right? It's kind of like a fireworks show on the 4th of July. You're sitting there and you know you're going to hear the noise. So you're kind of anticipating these flash, flashes of light before your eyes. But what if you're just sitting in your backyard one night and all of a sudden, boom, and a big fly. That would scare you. Why? Because you're not anticipating it. You would be frightened. All of a sudden, the heavens lit up, angels everywhere. And the one angel says, look at what he says, verse 11, 2.11, Luke 2.11. For there is born, 
Next two words. To you. To you, it says, this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. For there is born to you. Not to everyone. It doesn't say that. It says to you. Now remember who the angel's speaking to. Who is the angel speaking to? These lowly, stinking, bottom of the rung, you can't get any lower on the social class. Who's he talking to? He's talking to shepherds. I mean, when they came into town, if they ever came into town, man, you didn't want to be around a shepherd. They stunk. They stunk like animals. And you can just imagine out there in the wilderness, no bath. Ugh. But what does the angel says? Unto you, to you is born. Notice how personal it is. It's amazing. I mean, do you understand why God had to, he promised and he wanted to give us a personal gift through Christ to you personally? He just didn't do it in general. He did it to you as an individual. It's not hard. Think about it. Because you, as an individual, are personally responsible for your own sin. I'm not responsible for your sin. You're not responsible for my sin. We're all responsible for our own sin. And apart from the help of Christ in our lives, we have to pay the consequences of sin that we spoke of last week. We have to deal with the punishment and the pain of our sin. We don't like to hear that too often. <clears throat> but it's the truth. We have to re- readjust our, our thinking when it comes to punishment for our sin. I think sometimes we think that hell is this place, it's like this giant tank, a giant room. And whoever doesn't trust in Christ, they just get to go there and party for all eternity with their friends. Beloved, that is not hell. That is not the biblical representation of what hell is. Do you know that hell is not the same for everybody? Hell is not the same for everybody. There are degrees of punishment in hell. Jesus even said this in the Gospels. He said hell is going to be worse for for others than it is for, for some. Matthew 10, verse 15, he says, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What's he referencing? He's referencing a town he went and he did all these miracles. And what they do? They rejected him. They saw him personally, in person, doing miracle after miracle. And they concluded he wasn't from God. And they rejected him. And he says, you know what? These other people, Sodom and Gomorrah, I didn't go there. I didn't do any miracles in their presence. It's going to be worse for those people that saw Christ in person, it's going to be worse for people that hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and reject it than for people in Sodom and Gomorrah. He also says in Matthew eleven twenty four, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Hell is not a general Lies, one size fits all. Everybody's burning. Everybody's being punished for everybody's sin. Equally, that's not what hell is. What is hell? Hell is solitary confinement. Solitary confinement. Each individual sinner paying the penalty for their own sin for all eternity. Because they rejected the only one who could rescue them. And I don't think the worst part of hell is the fire. (laughs) The worst part of hell is not the pain. I think the worst part of hell is being separated from the love of God and separated from other people. I think the turmoil of hell for most people will be the absence of relationships. And I kind of believe personally that in hell, people that end up in hell one day, somehow they're going to understand 
the gospel that they rejected? Can you imagine for all eternity thinking, if I just would have followed Christ, if I just would have been so proud, if I just would have taken the time to examine my own heart, swallow my pride, and follow the Savior, I wouldn't be here. There's no other hope. At that point, you're, it's done. See, we need a personal Savior because we are personally responsible for our sin. And when Jesus hung on that cross, he took the pain, he took the punishment, he took the penalty for our sin individually. Individually. It was a very personal thing he did. He was suffering for you. He was suffering for me. See, this Christmas, don't just look at all the mangers, all the cute little babies. Recognize that this one, this baby, this Christ child came personally for you. He came personally for me. He would grow up to be the Christ and allow himself and volunteer himself for the cross because he knew that, you know what, we couldn't rescue ourselves. It was impossible. And because of his love for us, he came and died for us. He saved us from solitary confinement. He saved us for having to pay for our own sin for all of eternity. He took upon him all the sins of those who would ever put their faith and trust in his sacrifice on Calvary. And he stamped paid on it. I mean, if there's anything else... Nothing else that you have to be thankful for this Christmas. I pray that should be enough. I don't know where you were on February 1st, 2003, but most people remember that was the day the space shuttle Columbia came back to Earth. Or tried to. It entered the Earth's orbit and we saw the videos, it exploded. I mean, all of America was touched that day. The tragic, horrific accident. Seven, seven astronauts lost their lives. And there was a heaviness in our country on that day. And we're told that NASA investigators later found out that just this small little piece of foam during the takeoff less than three pounds, hit the underbelly of one of the wings, and it damaged one of the heat-absorbing tiles so much that when it was coming back to Earth through the Earth's atmosphere, it couldn't withstand the heat that was being built up, and it burned up and exploded. What's intriguing about this story is For 15 days and 22 hours after they took off, 15 days and 22 hours after they took off, these astronauts went about their business. Everything was fine. No one on Earth, no one from NASA, no expert told them that they had anything to fear. No one told them, you know what, you're in perilous danger. No one told them that, though they were. No one told them, you guys need to be rescued. Though they did. They just went about their business, about their work, as if everything was fine. And yet we know now that right after takeoff, they were doomed. They were doomed. I mean, experts say even if they had known... They didn't have the equipment. They didn't have the expertise to go out and fix this thing. So they were doomed from the start. And the reason I share that with you is because that space shuttle was really a picture. It's an illustration of every single person born. The Bible says that we are conceived in sin 
From the moment that we were conceived in our mother's womb, we were launched into sin. The Bible says that we had enmity, that's hostility, that's animosity toward God. God had wrath on our sin. And and we had no chance, none, zero, from the beginning. I mean, it didn't matter. But you know what? So many of us go around acting here in our own lives as if everything is just fine and dandy. Everything's fine. I'm doing well, you're doing well, yeah, you look good, I look good, we got a job, we got a house, we got a car, we got a place, we got nice little kids, everything's wonderful. They have no idea that apart from Christ, they are doomed from the very beginning. That's what this prophecy is telling us. Is It's telling us that we have someone who says, I know you're doomed, I know there's no hope for you. And guess what? I'm coming to rescue you because you cannot rescue yourself. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is what? Is death. The wages of sin is death. That's it. You're doomed. There's no hope. We're conceived in sin, we experience sin, we choose sin, we love sin, we go after sin. If we're honest, as Christians, we're enticed by sin. We're not perfect. John Owen wrote a wonderful book called The Mortification of Sin. If you've never read it, I I really encourage you to read it. The Mortification of Sin. Get the abridged volume, it's a little easier to read than the old language, but... We went through it as a group study with the men years ago. But one thing he said in that book that really struck my heart is sin is not what we do. Sin is what we are. Sin is not what we do. Sin is what we are. So we can do nothing apart from Christ. We are doomed And the promise from God is, you know what? I know you're doomed and I'm coming to rescue you. The wages of sin is death. Comma. Thank God for the comma. Praise the Lord, it's not a period. But, but the gift of God is what? Is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the rescuer. Christ is the promise. He's the one who says, you know what? You can't do it on your own. You can't do it yourself. Give it up already. I'm coming for you. It's a personal gift. Secondly, it's a practical gift to us. Practical gift. How many of you hated practical gifts growing up? (laughs) At Christmas time, you know. You got the gloves or the scarf or the boots or... Whatever. Socks, underwear kind of stuff, right? The winter coat. I mean, you need all those things, right? School supplies. What am I getting for Christmas? School supplies. Oh, yay. Yeah, right. Sure. Your kid's really going to love that. I need those things, but I don't want it for Christmas. One Christmas, I was working early in our marriage, and Crystal was living with us, our daughter, she was probably in uh, seventh or eighth grade, and I was working at a Christian bookstore part-time, and part-time as a youth pastor. And at the Christian bookstore, they had a sale, and I got an employee discount, and I didn't have a lot of money, and it was getting close to Christmas. So one Friday night, I asked the boss, hey, can I have some of these books? You know, are you going to give me a discount? Oh, yeah, yeah, some of these kids' books. I must have bought her 40 books. Wrapped them all, you know, individually, thinking, oh, more gifts, the better. Well, you know, after the third book, she's opening these books. She's like, really? Another book? I mean, she wasn't thrilled, to say the least. Now, there were good books. She needed to read the books. But, you know, it was kind of a practical gift. But today, as I grow older, I kind of like practical gifts. 
Don't you? When somebody gives you something, well, I really needed this, and I, I didn't buy it yet, and you bought it for me, and now I can put it right to use. See, that's what God says Jesus is for us. He's, he's personal, but he's also practical. He's coming for you personally, but he's also practical. He's a gift that satisfies. You could never afford it, but it's practical. You'll use it. That's what these four names here in, in Isaiah 9, 6 deal with. From Genesis to Revelation, we have some three, 250 titles, some 250 titles, names for the Messiah. You say, wow, that's a lot of names for one individual. Yeah. You say, well, why is there so many names? Because one name could never describe Christ. One name could never describe the Son of God. We have Jesus. That means what? God saves now, right? That's a great description. But that one name cannot contain all that Jesus is. So we have all these names. We have these descriptors of of the Messiah. And you can usually tell because it says he will be called. This isn't a literal name, right? It's It's not a formal name for Christ. It's more of a characteristic. And the first one we have here, so practical, it's wonderful counselor, it says. Wonderful counselor. See, he's so practical. He's the gift who gives perfect clarity in our confusion. Perfect clarity. If we'll listen, if we will heed his counsel, he will give us every time perfect clarity in our confusion. Have you ever been confused or anxious about something and finally you just give up and you just start to pray and say, Lord, I don't want to make this decision. I mean, how to make this decision? Help me out. And all of a sudden, like out of nowhere it seems, all of a sudden you're given clarity. You're given assurance. You're given confidence. It doesn't come from you. It's coming from God. Wonderful, counselor, it says. I mean, today's everything's wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. It doesn't mean much to us. Today, that word wonderful. In the original language in in Hebrew, wonderful, just so you know, that word in the scriptures is not given, it's not assigned to anyone other than God. There's no one else that's called wonderful throughout the Bible. Only God. There's no one in scripture called wonderful. In that Hebrew word, it means miraculously wonderful. It means miraculously marvelous. It means astoundingly amazing. When's the last time somebody said, man, you're just astoundingly amazing, dude. I mean, you don't hear that, right? It's only a truth. Attributed to God. And so he's saying here, the one that I am sending you is miraculously wonderful. He's mysteriously, miraculously marvelous and astoundingly amazing. In what way, you might ask? Well, Isaiah 28, verse 29 says, This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in what? Counsel and excellent, excellent in guidance. He's marvelously, miraculously, wonderfully, astoundingly amazing in his ability to counsel you personally, to guide you in his leadership of you. See, the idea we have today of a counselor, you know, someone wants counseling. Well, a lot of times what they want is they want someone to listen to them. Is that not true? That's the modern idea of a counselor. In the Bible, that's not the idea of a counselor. Proverbs says, in the multitude of counselors is much wisdom. See, in the Bible, a counselor is someone who knows you intimately. They know your situation completely. And they can speak with hope and with help into your life. I would, wouldn't it be wonderful to have someone who is miraculously wonderful, 
miraculously, marvelous, amazingly, astoundingly amazing, who knows your situation completely. See, this is exactly the promise that God is making through Isaiah here. He is perfect clarity in our confusion. Now, some people say, well, my life's just filled with confusion. That's all I know is confusion. It's because you're going everywhere else for your counsel except this book. You're going everywhere else except God. Oftentimes, we go to everyone. We talk to our friends. We talk to our relatives, parents, our kids. We look everywhere. We go all kinds of books. Look in the trees, look in the bushes. We look for this answer that's evading us. We need to go to God's word. Because we really don't put all this at his feet. We really don't go to God and say, you know what, okay, I don't understand the situation, but I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. I'm just giving it over to you. We don't do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, But to those called by God to salvation, both Jew and Gentile, Christ, listen, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you hear that? Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, Jesus Christ is not just some wise guy. He's not a wise person alone. What the Bible says is he is the sum total. Of God's wisdom. He knows everything about everything. And he's never been wrong about anything. And it's impossible for him to ever be wrong about anything. Because he knows everything. So when you go to him. Because he's never been wrong about anything. And he knows everything. There is to know. He knows exactly what you need. When you need it. How does he know that? Because he created you. I mean, we come to earthly counselors, and hopefully we can help. We can point you in the right direction. But I don't know what God has for you. I don't know what God's trying to do in your life. See, God can never give you bad advice. He never will give you bad advice. He is the sum total. Christ is the sum total of the wisdom of God. He is wisdom personified. He is perfect clarity in our confusion. Wonderful counselor. Well, secondly, quickly here, we see almighty God. He's perfect strength in our storms. He's almighty God. He's not just a wonderful counselor who's going to shoot you some advice now and then. He's going to tell you what to do. He's going to show you what to do because why? He's going to be there with you. That's the idea. He is mighty God, and then he goes with you. No other counselor goes with you. You come to the counselor, and you tell the counselor your problems, and they say, okay, here, blah, 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 and then you leave. The counselor doesn't say, well, here, I'll just follow you and help you whenever you need help. That would be a very expensive counselor. He gives you perfect advice. And he says, you know what? I'm going to give you perfect advice, but I'm not just going to give you the advice. I'm actually going to walk with you through this. He helps us to know the right thing to do. And then he empowers us to do it. And we need that because sometimes he asks us to do things. Guess what? We don't want to do. (laughs) You ever been there? Sometimes we don't want to do what God asks us to do. Things like preach every week in front of people. I mean, don't get me wrong. I praise the Lord. He's using me, hopefully, to give clarity to his word. But if you know me at all, this is not a comfortable position for me. To stand in front of people and talk. It just doesn't fit my personality. I mean, even when I was younger, when I was, you know, started playing keyboards and piano and synthesizers and organs and stuff like that. Um, when I tell people that, what, how, old, how old did you start? Well, I taught myself around when I was 10 or 
11 or 12, we had an old M1 Hammond organ in the living room, and I taught myself the Star Spangled Banner. So I just got into it after that. And they said, wow, you started so young, you must have been in a band. I'm like, what? No way. I would never think of joining a band. I mean, it was me, my keyboards, my sound system, and my little drum machine in my basement. And I remember, I'd be playing away, and all of a sudden I'd hear my sister well, that's really nice. Well, stop. Stop the, stop the music. What are you doing? Oh, I was just enjoying that. That's fine. Well, continue. No. Couldn't do it. No desire to play in front of anyone, even my own family. Well, you know what? Jesus promises to be with us. He promises to be with me. He says he'll go before you. I'm going to ask you to do something you don't feel comfortable doing, but you know what? I'm going to empower you to do it anyway for my glory. And he does just that, and so we have to trust him. He gives us strength in the storms. He doesn't pull us out of the storms. He goes, what? Through the storms with us. Do you understand that? I mean, do you know what a stormless existence is? It's called heaven. It's called heaven. I mean, if he takes the storms out of your life, guess what? He's taking the life out of you. You're going to be dead. We're going to be doing your funeral. Then you'll be at peace. And that's true, right? But if you're going to live here on earth, you're going to have storms. You're going to have troubles. You're going to have problems because you're still alive on earth. See, the problem with many of us is we're trying to make this life, what? Heaven. Heaven on earth. My best life now. I don't think so, pal. Why? Because it's not. It's more like hell on earth. That's why we get so frustrated. I mean, we ask ourselves, why can't this be heaven? It's very easy, because it's not. It's not heaven. Period. Move on. Get done. But but God says, you know what? I'll advise you through these hard times. And not only that, but I'll go with you. I'll give you clarity and be your strength. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What do we do? We look forward, Titus says in chapter 2 verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He also says he's an everlasting father. He gives us perfect leadership in our lives. John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. What is he? He's a father to us. He's an everlasting father. Perfect leadership. And lastly, the last one, Prince of Peace. He gives us perfect peace in our troubles and our problems. John chapter 14, verse 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace, this is Christ speaking, I give to you. We have access to the peace of Christ. The peace that allowed Jesus to face the cross and all the turmoil. Colossians 3.15, Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ, what? Rule, rule, have dominion in your hearts. There's so many of us that are freaked out over this election. I mean, honestly, I don't think I've watched the news since the election. At least, I mean, like I was a news junkie. I said, I'm done. This is foul to my mind. I am thinking things that a pastor should not be thinking. I need to change some viewing habits here. So I watch Gunsmoke and Barney Fife and all those shows. My wife makes fun of me, but man, it mellows you out. It works. Gives me that peace I need. <clears throat> Christ will get us through this. Doesn't matter who our president is. God already knows. And it's a permanent gift to us. He says in Isaiah 9, 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Permanent gift, not something to be taken away from us. Remember what Buzz Lightyear used to say, his great motto? What did he say? 
to infinity and beyond. Remember that? Sunday school kid was asked by his teacher, how much does God love us? And it was around Christmas time and he kind of wanted a reward or something. And he says, God loves us to infinity and beyond. From the mouth of babes. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us, Lord, that you are not just needed, but you did come for us to rescue us from this sin that possesses us. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Pray, Lord, that you would just minister um, to each heart here. I don't know the condition of each heart. I don't know if people have trusted you or not, but you do. And, Lord, it's, it's up to you to draw them to yourself. It's up to, them to, show, up to you to show them the sinfulness of their own heart, the inadequacy they have in saving themselves. Lord, they need to put their faith, their trust in Christ and Christ alone. We ask that you would do that work in their heart even now. You would show them clearly their need of a Savior. Father, as believers, I pray that we would leave this place with renewed joy and renewed clarity of our task of preaching the gospel in this intermediate time here between the first time it was preached in Genesis and the last time it would be preached by an angel. You left us here with an incredible task to take this message of good news that Christ saves to a lost and dying world and to see them turn their hearts to Christ. Father, we know that it can't happen without your work, without your spirit, without your sovereign hand. And so we pray to that end. Pray that you go before us today. Pray you bless our fellowship across the way afterwards. We thank you. And with this, we are dismissed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.